Hello. Greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Today, let's explore a, a subject that is very understandable in terms of Christianity, and a lot of people even uh, consider it as part of Christianity, something that often gets treated either very flippantly or perhaps overly seriously, and that is righteousness. Uh, it was a staple of slang in the 80s. That wave was righteous. Everything was righteous in the 80s. But righteousness is also associated with Jesus and Christianity, but generally seen in a kind of dour, somber, serious ways. When people think of righteousness, they may think of some kind of priest or monk or nun, a saint, some guy in a suit or woman in plain dresses, something like that, acting very seriously. But what is righteousness according to what God has made known in Christ and through the pages of Scripture? How do we define righteousness, and on what basis do we define it that way? Can we be righteous, and on what basis? And what does it mean to live according to righteousness? How would that happen? Now, if you turn on the internet and you look up righteousness, you get this definition. The quality of being morally right or justifiable. Merriam-Webster kind of goes along with something you might expect from a religious viewpoint. Acting in accord with divine or moral law, free from guilt or sin, as a primary meaning. The secondary meanings include morally right or justifiable, or arising from an outraged sense of justice or morality. That kind of idea of righteous indignation. Now these words are, are English terms. Uh, the Hebrew has a word that translates to righteousness... Uh, that will come from a, a root uh, kind of like zadik um, or zedekah, and it's often paired with shafat or justice, like Abraham in Genesis eighteen nineteen is one who works with righteousness and justice, uh, and God constantly is spoken that way. Prophets will do that a lot of times. You'll see uh, righteousness and justice paired together uh, in the Old Testament text. But in Greek, we have the Greek word dikaiosune. And Thayer defines it as, in a broad sense, state of him who is as he ought to be, righteousness, the condition acceptable to God. And uh, secondary ways of looking at that first definition, the doctrine concerning the way in which man may attain a state approved of God, integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. Now, second definition, in a narrower sense, justice or the virtue which gives each his due. That's important to note, because whereas in Hebrew, justice and righteousness would often be paired as separate terms, in the New Testament, both get subsumed under this word, dikaiosune. And so we need to be very careful in the New Testament when we read that word, righteousness, uh, if we try to do it in a way that is independent of justice. Because a lot of times you could take out righteousness and put in justice, and uh, the sense would still be there. Uh, often the either term could be used and the translation is valid, so we cannot understand them as independent of each other. But the general idea here, from the definitions that we're supposed to get, is that righteousness really has two kinds of components. There's the righteousness that we think of, in terms of, okay, these are the type of things that you do to be uh, doing right things, thinking right things, feeling right things. But there's also this idea of standing, of uh, being made right, how we stand acceptably before God. And we'll untangle these as we proceed, by necessity. Alright, so... Uh, when we go back to righteousness, this main idea people have are right thinking, feeling, acting, right? That's what most people tend to associate with righteousness. And we need to be very clear. We need to figure out what kind of standard we should use to assess whether something is right that we should think on or feel or do.
uh, or whether it is actually contrary to right thinking, feeling, or doing. Because when we look at that definition again, acting in accordance with moral law, according to whom? Who gets to set that standard? And of course, in our culture today, there's all kinds of different standards that are proposed. A lot of people, uh, consciously or unconsciously, look to the laws of our nation on a municipal, county, state, and federal level to establish righteousness. If I'm doing what the law says, then I'm righteous. Uh, some look to philosophy. And their philosophy often is really themselves. And even the philosophy, the idea of philosophy throughout time is try to figure out the moral or right life. Others will look to various religions and look for religious codes to follow as the standard of righteousness. But how well do these standards really hold up in life? Well, uh, the big thing in cities, counties, states, and the country as a whole is how often laws are changed, right? And some people find that to be a long time in coming. Some people are very scared that those laws would change. And it wouldn't have to take us very long to look back to see very different attitudes in place. Um, and to realize that just the standard of law that is established in a given country or given area is not necessarily uh, the standard of righteousness we should use. It tends to change a lot. On what and beyond that, even, um, there are a lot of times where there are lots of things that are allowable under a given law code, um, but may not actually be the, the, the greatest idea to do. So the idea is that law is not designed to make any, everything illegal, necessarily. There could be a lot of things that aren't great, but aren't illegal either. And so, therefore, uh, we can't really necessarily look to the state laws to uh, prohibit every wrong thing. We could also imagine times where perhaps the state would make something wrong that's actually right. And so there's that problem as well. Now, on what basis could a philosophy or a person be authoritative in terms of righteousness? Well, you go back and look at various philosophies, they end up rooting themselves in some idea of natural law or some general consensus or what society and culture has already taught a person of that sort. And those standards also vary considerably throughout time and place. A lot of people appeal to religion and think that there's a lot of commonalities in religion. Well, there are some things that uh, religions hold in common. It doesn't take very long in study of any uh, set of religions to realize that there's a lot of differences as well. And so if we keep looking uh, among uh, these various earthly things for standards, we're going to fall short. But we are to look to a different standard. And in the pages of Scripture, we learn that God, who is our Creator, is righteous. And thus, his instruction is righteous. There's a logic here. For instance, in the 33rd Psalm, uh, in verse th uh, beginning in verse 4, For the word of Yahweh is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of Yahweh. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. Uh, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And he continues in that same line of thinking. And the whole logic there is, well, Yahweh's our creator. Yahweh created all things. Yahweh created all things by speaking them. He then spoke uh, the law, the Torah, to Israel, to Moses and the people. And therefore, the good word that he used to create the heavens and the earth is the same good word that has provided us with this instruction. We get that also in Psalm 19, the associations there. Uh, in Psalm 119, very famous psalm, uh, Yahweh's Torah, that instruction is exalted uh, very highly in its value. 
And so we see in these verses that God is our creator, creator of all the heavens and earth, and he loves justice and righteousness. And he has founded his whole throne on righteousness. And therefore he defines what is right and good. So we should look to God for that definition. So what is that definition? What is God's standard of righteousness? Well, we just saw, hey, Psalm 119, it's God's Torah, it's God's instruction. And we let people appeal to the law of Moses. And hey, that's good reason. It was given by God to Israel for them to follow in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the first three verses. Uh, Paul in Romans 7 verse 12 affirms that the law was righteous and holy. And yet, as we can see in Romans chapter 3, 1 through 20, the law itself is not sufficient to bring true righteousness because we cannot be made righteous by the works of the law. So yes, uh, the law for Israel had that standard of what is right and good, uh, the right things to do in the first set, but it could not give you that standing before God. And In fact, Paul strains to argue, beginning in Romans 7, verse 12, and following, that the problem is not the law itself, but sin. That by sinning, people transgress the law, and the law on its own merits could not make anybody righteous who had transgressed against it. And so, it's for this reason that God sent his Son to proclaim what is right and good, to die for our sin. But beyond all that, he embodied the character of God and godliness. In Hebrews 1, 1-3, through 3, we are told that the exact imprint of the divine image, that word imprint there is Greek character, from which we get character. And that... Um, this is why in John 14, 6 through 9, Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life. Why? Because if you have seen him, you have seen the Father. Because he is the exact embodiment of the character of God. And so we can understand something very clearly. If God defines what is holy and right, and Jesus is the embodiment of God in his character, then we understand true holiness through Jesus, and in terms of Jesus. And it's for this reason why Paul says as he imitates Christ in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, why John appeals to everybody to do his commandments and to walk as he walked in 1 John 2, 3-6. And so the New Testament, really, as the writings or the practical outworking of how we follow God in Christ to manifest true righteousness in terms of how Jesus thought felt, and acted. And this is something that we see pervasively in the text. Uh, we could appeal to Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, Colossians 3 and 4, where Paul understands all these different roles in life in terms of uh, serving Christ to them. In Philippians 2, Paul will say, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now Paul will continue, but notice there that Paul's grounding all these things that the Philippians are to do in what Christ has done for us and to follow the model, to have the mind in us, which was in Christ Jesus. And a lot of times when uh, we preachers especially talk about righteousness, we keep going back to one passage in particular because it's very easy. Because in Galatians chapter 5, Paul sets it out very clearly. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. 
And he continues. So the idea there, hey, we've got this fruit of the spirit list, right? And these are the manifestations of righteousness. And these are a very good, coherent list of the characteristics that Christians ought to embody. And we need to look at this list and really think about it here. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Uh, you look at those things, and, and the first thing we need to realize is that these things uh, is not just about what you do. Uh, it's not just about deeds. It's first and foremost about thought and disposition that lead to deeds. For instance, love, joy, patience, we'll throw humility in there as well, are th not things you really do as much as what you think and feel and what you manifest in how you decide to behave. And this is really a core lesson that Jesus has from the beginning in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. through 7. Uh, Jesus wants us to know that the actions that we do derive from thoughts and feelings. And those thoughts and feelings are uh, as sinful as the actions that may come out. That's why he says it's not what goes into a man that defiles him in Mark 7, but it's what comes out of a man, his thoughts and his actions in Mark 7, 14-23. It's also worth noting that it's not the fruits of the Spirit, it's singular, it's fruit of the Spirit. It's manifested in these various characteristics, but it must be taken as a whole, uh, not merely in part. It's not enough for us to have love and joy, but not peace or patience. We have to embody all of those characteristics. And it doesn't exist in a vacuum. We, we don't get to define for ourselves what is love, joy, peace, patience, etc. Uh, instead, we are to manifest those characteristics in our lives as Jesus did in His and so we have that list. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, meekness and self-control. We can also add humility from 1 Peter 5, 5 and a host of other verses. What are these things? Well, love, we can see in 1 Corinthians 13 very clearly, is seeking the best interest of the beloved, even if that is not necessarily our best interest. Joy is not the emotion, but contentment regardless of circumstance. That's so why Paul can say rejoice always, and again I say rejoice in Philippians 4.4, 4, even though he's in prison. It's not about a feeling, it's about a state of contentment. Peace is not the mere absence of hostility, but the killing of that hostility, the removal of that hostility. It's something Jesus accomplished on the cross in Ephesians 2.11-18. I like that old long suffering from the American standards and the older versions. That's what patience is. It's suffering long, able to hold on for a long time without snapping. Uh, kindness is a disposition toward others to do good to them. So kindness and goodness kind of go along with it. The kindness is the is a disposition toward, and the goodness is the actual stuff that you're doing. Faithfulness, we can look at as two ways. There's the one who's full of faith, like Stephen in Acts 6 and verse 5, but also is trustworthy or dependable, like God is faithful in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 3, that we are to be as trustworthy as God has proven trustworthy. Meekness is a good one, something Christians are to also see have in 1 Timothy 6.11. It's strength under control. It's not being weak, it's strength under control. And self-control is exactly that, to keep our faculties under discipline. Paul will use a great image of the runner in 1 Corinthians 9.24-27. The racer in a race has to have all of his faculties under control in order to excel in the race and to win it. Humility is not thinking less of oneself, but as having an accurate assessment of one standing before God and others. You're not any better or worse than other humans, and you're a part of God's creation. Uh, now, that might mean you do have to think less of yourself, but it's not a guarantee. And we saw what that looked like in Philippians chapter 2. And of course, 
Okay, that's a great list of things. We can define them, but uh, how do we apply them? Well, as Christ did, and that's what you see over and over in Scripture. We are to love others as God has loved us. In 1 John 4, 7-21, that's self-sacrificial love which he has given us in Jesus, also in Romans 5, 6-11. We are to be humble, and we saw the model, have this mind among yourselves as is yours of Christ Jesus in Philippians 2, 5-11. That humility there is manifest. Jesus endured the cross, according to the Hebrew author in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, account of the joy set before him. It wasn't a fun time, but he was content despite the circumstance because of his confidence in God. Jesus accomplished peace through his death on the cross, as we mentioned in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. And we could do that with all these other things. Uh, how do we understand what they look like? How do we understand how they should be done? Well, we see it modeled in Jesus. It's also important for us to note James 4 and verse 17. That if we know the right thing to do, but we don't do it, it is sin. So righteousness is not just about knowing what is right. It's not just understanding the truth. It's also about doing it. So when we look at righteousness, this full, whole first concept of righteousness, the, the general core concept we have of righteousness, uh, of thinking, feeling, doing the right things, is not some kind of sterile, disembodied list of, of to-dos or not-to-dos, uh, but it's these characteristics that we see manifest in Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection, and thus provides a way forward uh, for us to follow. So that's how we understand righteousness. We look to Jesus, we consider what Jesus did, we look at these different characteristics, we see how Jesus modeled them, and we are to follow in that same pattern. And we should be thankful that God has given us that pattern. It makes it a lot easier even if we don't want to admit it at times. But that leads us to this next question. All right, so that's what righteousness looks like. But uh, how can we be considered righteous before God? Uh, And a lot of times people have associated being righteous with doing the right things. And we can understand it's a logical concept. what is righteousness? Thinking, feeling, doing right things. Therefore, who is righteous? Those who think, feel, and do the right things, right? That seems to work, right? But the problem with that, as Paul identified very clearly in Romans 3, is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that in fact no one except for Jesus has ever done all of the right. And that's why in Romans 3, in verse 20, and Paul says that none of us can be justified or gain that righteous standing before God on the basis of works of the law. And that's going to be true about any code of conduct. And we get this illustration from James 2, 9 and 10, where James says that uh, uh, if you are guilty in one point of the law, you are guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also do not murder, do not steal. So if you uh, uh, commit adultery, uh, but do not murder, you're still a transgressor under the law. So it doesn't matter how many great things you've done, it doesn't matter how righteous you are, when you have done something that is wrong, and we all have done something that is wrong, uh, that standard just considers us as a transgressor. And that is why in Romans 3-5 through and Galatians 3, uh, both of these times, Paul uh, talks very powerfully as the core of his message in those letters, that the only way we can stand righteous before God is by our faith, our trust in Jesus, who secured justification for us, the ability to stand as righteous before God, through offering himself on the cross for our sins. And this makes sense when we look at this whole scheme, that all of us are transgressors before God, but that Jesus died for our sins, that he suffered on our behalf. That's how he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1.29. And the Hebrew author will go in great detail in Hebrews 7, 8, 9 uh, about how Jesus was able to offer himself 
as a sacrifice for our sins. And when we trust in Jesus for forgiveness, God forgives us of our sins, that we are reckoned as righteous before God. Romans 4, Paul quotes from Psalm 32 about this, and also in 1 John 1 and verse 7, that if we confess our sins, he is, and he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins, 1 John 1, 9. Now, uh, some people have talked about this in terms of if Jesus' like, righteousness coming to us, that somehow it is imputed to us or, or credited to us. Well, it, righteousness is not a gas. It's not uh, some transferable quality. Uh, it's a reckoning. Reckoning is a good way of looking at because that's an accounting metaphor, that God reckons as righteous, which does not mean that Jesus' righteousness is imputed or granted to believer. Jesus' righteousness is his righteousness. Our righteousness is only as reckoning through our cleansing, that because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, uh, the acts that we have done against uh, God's purposes are cleared from the book, so to speak. They're not held against us, and therefore we have the ability to stand before God as righteous. And so the only way we can actually be declared righteous by God is because of what God has done for us in Jesus and our trust in Jesus. We can't do it on our own because no matter how hard we try, we can't atone for sin. Uh, we die because of our sins and we suffer the consequences. That's just right. That's just the way it should be. Uh, there's no way to atone for that. So we haven't earned it. We haven't deserved it. Uh, it can't be found or maintained independently or separate from being part of God in Christ. And that is why in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, Paul can say, We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. All right, so we've seen what righteousness looks like, that we are to manifest the fruit of the Spirit as Jesus did, and that's what it means to live righteously, to think, feel, and do that way. Uh, but now we've seen also that we ourselves have not done this, and that the only way we have any ability to stand before God is through our trust in Jesus, that we're getting the forgiveness that comes through his uh, blood. But there's a tension there, isn't there? Because we are to be righteous and to live righteously, and our standing is righteous before God is because of our faith and not because of anything we've earned or deserved. So how can we really live righteously? Uh, this is a sometimes a question that people don't think too hard about. They often will just assume, well, okay, well, we're forgiven, so that means we're good. The past has been dealt with, so now we can go back to do what we were doing and everything should be fine. We've The past has been addressed, now we can live righteously. Uh, but that's a fairly naive assumption, because Paul, Romans 3.23 does not just say that we have sinned, it also says we fall short, and that's the presence, a continual thing uh, in our lives, and that a sin is a continual presence because of our weakness in 1 John 1, 7. Uh, Isaiah, who was a member of the covenant people of God, declared that the righteousness of the people of God of his day was as a polluted garment in Isaiah 64 and verse 6. It's literally a menstrual rag. Uh, well, it's probably hyperbolic, and there people of Israel weren't very faithful at the time, but that's still a pretty uh, powerful image there, isn't it? It doesn't really speak well toward uh, his ability, the people's ability to do what God said. Now, where would we get the impression from the New Testament that by our own unaided efforts, we're going to be able to be more successful at practicing righteousness after becoming a Christian than before? The text does not really give any justification to that end. And that is why uh, the New Testament throughout emphasizes that we're going to need to be empowered to live righteously, not merely by our own efforts, but also through the strength and power of God in Christ. There's this verse everybody loves in Philippians 4.13, right? That I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, 
Okay, we can do all things through him who strengthens us. We need the strength of God in Christ in order to do that. And that is why Paul says that he, the life that he lives, he lives by faith in the Son of God in Galatians 2, 20 21. In Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, Paul prays that they would be, that Ephesians would be stre- strengthened with power by God in the, in the inner man uh, through the Spirit uh, in order to understand the height, depth, etc. of the love of God in Christ. Uh, we see also in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, the idea that... Um, we are to stand in the Lord, in 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 God, and in the strength of His might, and and that constant emphasis there is to stand in the strength of the Lord. Now, uh, we can understand this also in John 15. I am the vine; you are the branches. Uh, Jesus provides this whole idea that apart from me you can do nothing. That in order for us to be able to function righteously and to bear fruit, we need to be connected. to to God in Christ, through Jesus to God, and that there's going to be some level of strength, some level of equipping that's going to happen because of that. Now, very easy when we start talking about these things that people think, well, that leaves no role for people. Well, no, 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 no. Romans 6, 14 through 23, Paul will say, they were not under law but under grace. And that he will understand being under grace is having become obedient to the standard of teaching to which we've been committed. So we absolutely have our own role in volition. We need to strive toward righteousness, but we cannot presume that we're going to accomplish it through our own innate efforts. And this whole process is really spoken of as sanctification, or to be made holy. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-7, it's our God's will for us to be sanctified, you know, and... Uh, to be sanctified is to be made holy, and of course to stand again, that we are to be holy as God is holy in 1 Peter 1, 13-16. It's a character refinement thing. Uh, in 1 Peter 3-9, through 9, the idea of going through a crucifix through fire. Uh, in 2 Peter 1, 5-8, that we're adding characteristics of righteousness, steadfastness, uh, brotherly love, uh, things of that nature. And in fact, Jesus prayed that God would sanctify believers in the truth in John 17:17. 17, 17. But we really can't talk about this kind of thing with righteousness without reference to the Holy Spirit. In Romans 15, 16, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, and 1 Peter 1, 1, the Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies, that our sanctification is in the Spirit. In Galatians 5, we said that that was the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit that the Spirit owns somehow. Uh, we are to walk by the Spirit, not the flesh. And we saw it in Galatians 5, it's also in Romans 8, 1 through 9. And when discussing the working of the church as the body of Christ, Paul makes constant reference to the work of the Spirit. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, we talk about the fact that some of the miraculous gifts are no longer given, like speaking in tongues and prophecy and knowledge in 1 Corinthians 13 8, but there are plenty of other gifts that do remain. In Galatians 3, 1 through 3, the whole problem that Galatian Christians have is that uh, by turning back to works of the law, they're trying to be perfected according to the flesh what God began to do in the Spirit. And so there's striving to maturity in the faith in terms of the Spirit versus in terms of trying to do it according to works of the law. How are we strengthened by God? Through His Spirit within us in Ephesians 3.16. Ephesians 5.18, to be filled with the Spirit, not drunk on alcohol. And we saw in Philippians 2 and verse 1, if there is any participation in the Spirit. And we can go on and on and on, but it's very important to notice that the locus, the place of holiness process, is in the Spirit. However you want to understand that, it happens within the Spirit, and it's therefore energized and empowered by Him in some way. 
Now, that may cause us some theological grief and difficulties, but we should be able to recognize that God is going to work through his spirit to empower us that we can live righteously, while we also are to commit ourselves, mind, heart, and soul, to pursue righteousness. These are not mutually exclusive. And to suggest that you can do one without the other would be to neglect many parts of what is said in Scripture. In fact, as some seem to do, to expect the Spirit to do all the work and believers have no role is really faith without works. And we know in James 2, 14-26, faith without works is dead. And if that were to be the case, that the Spirit was going to do without any of our help, uh, how do we uh, explain what went wrong with Israel according to the flesh? Uh, that would all be on God more than it would be on them. On the other hand, to expect that uh, the work should be all done by the believer without any help uh, or strength from God through the Spirit would mean that we're living and doing moral striving not unlike what Israel tried and failed to do and what we tried and failed to do without Christ. Is that really what God is after? Are we able to do it any more effectively now than we were then? No. No, not on our own. And so, once we're reckoned as righteous through our faith in Christ, uh, as believers we can begin to strive in the Spirit unto the substance of righteousness seen in the fruit of the Spirit, and we'll be empowered by the Spirit in various ways to accomplish that. And so that's righteousness, uh, in a very uh, general, broad way. We've seen that, yes, the substance of righteousness is what we see in Jesus of Nazareth, the embodiment of God's character. Uh, we describe that in terms of humility and the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, but our, our righteous standing before God is not based on anything we've done, but the love, grace, and mercy that God has demonstrated to us through Jesus and his death for the forgiveness of our sins. And we do well to strive to embody the fruit of the Spirit, to follow the ways of God in Christ, but recognizing our dependence on God's strength and sustenance if we are going to be sanctified, holy, and righteous. And so let us trust in God in Christ to stand righteous and to live righteously in the Spirit of our God. I hope that you've been benefited by this. If there's any benefit to this, please uh, share it on your on uh, various social media. Let people know about it. If uh, we can be of service in any way, if you have some questions about some of the things that we've said, you'd like to discuss or consider other uh, subjects uh, all about fundamentals of the faith or other such things, if you'd like to participate in a Bible study or like to participate in a Bible correspondence course, if you have a prayer request, please contact us uh, online at VeneceChurchOfChrist.org, or we're also on many forms of social media. Uh, or if you'd like to contact me personally, you can reach me at my website, TheVerbalVitae.com. That's www.DeVerbalVitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.